If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Friday, September 23rd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesco. When Florida Governor Ron DeSantis decided to provide a Martha Vineyard airlift to Venezuela immigrants on loan from Texas, you would expect politicians like Joe Biden to call it playing politics with human beings, as he did, because it was. You might not expect Jared Kushner to weigh in with these words. We have to remember these are human beings, they're people, so seeing them being used as political pawns one way or the other is, is very uh, troubling to me. But he did. And while it seems like no laws were broken by DeSantis, he is being sued by some of the migrants. And Bayer County, Texas Sheriff Javier Salazar says he is investigating the criminal implications of the migrants being lured under false pretenses onto buses headed to Florida. This a wrinkle in Abbott's ongoing strategy of busing migrants to Washington, D.C. So with all the blowback, even among former Trump officials and current Trump son-in-laws, if given the chance, do you think DeSantis and Abbott would do it again? Without question, they would. Quicker than it takes a Vinlander to rail against windmills and new money. Quicker than it took the online editor at Fox to take those Kushner comments and headline them, Kushner slams Biden for border crisis. Because, you see, in politics, there are many considerations for what policies to take, but in a close political race, or somewhat close, you have to pay attention to salience. Salience is the prominence of an issue on voters' minds. And both Abbott and DeSantis, in somewhat tight races, know that if the salience of immigration is raised, it can only help them. Doesn't matter how, immigration as an issue, good for those guys. The disapproval of the liberal media, up to and including many conservatives quoted in the liberal media, that doesn't actually matter. What matters is getting voters thinking about immigration as an issue and associating their incumbent Republican governor with being on the quote-unquote right side of it as an issue. So, Fox Channel 4 Dallas has some new polls. Republican Governor Greg Abbott has slightly increased his lead over Democrat challenger Beto O'Rourke. That, according to the latest polls, political experts believe the busing of asylum seekers and the increased attention on the border crisis may be one of the reasons. If the issue is guns and safety of school children, salience is on Beto O'Rourke's side. But as the issue of immigration rises in salience, so do Abbott's numbers. And it's not as if all the political experts, even those honestly appalled by these actions, didn't see it coming. We know it's for media attention, but these were human beings we couldn't ignore it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to say, obviously, he's getting criticized for exploiting people for mm -hmm. a political purpose, but he's got us talking about it. That was Chuck Todd and Peter Baker on Meet the Press last weekend. It's right from the Trump playbook. Unimaginable outrage generates undeniable results. On the show today, I bring you a raucous rapping Republican who may have claimed to be a little more in Afghanistan than he really was. But first, we continue talking to Scott Galloway, the NYU marketing professor who co-hosts the Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher. Galloway's new book is Drift, American 100 Charts. The topics on offer in today's conversation, Bezos as force for good or ill, corporate DEI training, and if France has outthought the U.S. when it comes to vacations. Scott Galloway up next. Yes, 
Yesterday, we spoke with Scott Galloway, author of the new book, Adrift, America in 100 Charts. Today, we pivot, as it were, to other issues, macro and micro. So Scott says that everyone has a responsibility to be economically sustainable, meaning they should work hard to get to security, housing, health care, the ability to absorb a shock, the option to take a vacation. And that income level in a lot of places, you know, Iowa, Nebraska, it's about 150000 but in some places on the coasts could be 750000 High-earning professional couples he considers to be the workhorses of the American economy. So what, I asked Scott, does that say about the Democratic Party's proposals that they won't raise taxes except on the wealthy, but they define the wealthy as, some in the party say 200,000, Biden holds the line defining wealthy at 400,000. But above 400,000 isn't the idle rich, it's as Scott says, workhorses. So does he think we should be using the tax code to disincentivize high six-figure income households? It's, I mean, fair is a tough word because uh, what what I'm comfortable saying is someone in the 98th percent shouldn't be paying a higher tax rate than someone in the 99.9th. And um, I, I don't understand why there's a deduction for capital gains. I believe what Reagan did. I can't understand why we've decided that the labor that sweat produces. Well, you, you understand that it's because of, you know, lobbyists and interests. Well, right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not usually that guy, but on this case, yeah, I definitely, it's definitely the case. Rationally, right, I right. don't know why we've decided that the money money makes is more noble than the money sweat makes. And originally the notion was we needed more investment capital. We need to encourage investment. There is no shortage of investment capital sitting on the sidelines in private equity and venture capital funds. Interest rates, even with their surge up, are at historical lows. What's, what's, what's hard is that people feel like they're working their asses off and they're not getting, they're not, we have enormous prosperity in our nation. We have a lack of progress. And it strikes me that it's just sort of insane that if someone gets to the 99th percentile, they not only get the gold medal, but at that point we say, here, you get the bronze and the silver too. So I just think very basics um, around a, a truly progressive tax structure, including past the 99th percent. The other thing is complexity. One of the things that's happened over the last 40 years is that if you can navigate by starlight, you want to run boat races at night. night. So the tax code's gone from 400 pages to 4,000. Government operates at about 23% of GDP. That's what it takes to operate our government, our Navy, and our parks and services, which technically means our taxes should be around 23%. We run a deficit, so technically it should be around 20 or 21%. So if you were to say people making over a million bucks get taxed at call it 40%, it means that kind of the rest would pay somewhere between 15 and 18% taxes. But what lobbyists have done is they have, they have infiltrated and weaponized government to the point where there's so many loopholes. I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I've made my living starting and selling businesses. Um, the last business I sold, the first $10 million of proceeds to me was tax-free. That makes no fucking sense. And people will say, People will say, but then you, w- you wouldn't have started a company. You wouldn't have taken those great risks, Scott, had you not ha- had better tax rates. You wouldn't have been incentivized. I can't tell you, Mike, what the tax rate was at any point in my life. Right. That had nothing to do with my decision whether to start a business or not. My decision to start a business was I have this desperate need to be relevant. I realize I'm self-aware enough to know I don't function well in companies. I don't say that like a humble brag that I'm so awesome. I just don't have the skills politically. I'm too insecure to work for other people. But I start a company and the first 10 million to me is tax-free. That makes no sense. I'll yes and that with this point. 
not only is it not true that people wouldn't start companies if they knew they were being taxed at 38%, they certainly would. The the idea of we don't do that to encourage investment in companies, look at all the capital on the sideline. It's not exactly having the effect of, you know, cr- forcing the economy to be ultra dynamic. Yeah, it's it's not the case. And should Apple be able to license their IP to an Irish subsidiary, shovel all their profits over there to low tax domains? I mean, there's literally if we need to decomplexify the tax code and also we have automation coming into the irs but what tax returns get automated the simpler ones the lower and middle income ones so audit rates have skyrocketed for lower and middle income payers and quite frankly the irs because of budget cuts is not motivated to go after really really wealthy people because the people auditing them need domain expertise weeks if not months to figure all that shit out so we've created a system that is truly regressive. And I think that lower taxes are within reach. And what we, what the reality is, people who can navigate by starlight, who can hire Sherpas with advanced degrees in law to help them navigate taxes, they pay very low taxes in America. So I like the idea of not a flat tax, but a flatter tax, decomplexify. All income is the same income. It doesn't matter if you got it from the proceeds of selling a stock or from waiting tables. Up to $100,000, you pay 15%, you know, above 100,000, you pay 25 or 28, whatever it might be. And I think we'd be shocked how low tax rates would be if everybody had to pay them. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're a professor of economics and marketing, but really everything, the through line to most of what you're talking about is how do we find meaning? And I think you correctly identify that, especially in our society, trying to make money and working hard when you're young is a way to find meaning. And then a book like this highlights, okay, there are downsides to this and there are historical um, flaws and missteps along the way, but it's all really a quest for meaning, maybe, you know, through more uh, economic than emotional means. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what you're after. As I, as I imbibe mo- uh, so much of your content, that's what I'm taking away from it. Well, this sounds very boomer and it sounds very crass, but I find that when people talk in spiritual terms and tell you to follow your passion, it means they're already rich. I know. I know. It's just like no one, no one on their deathbed ever said, I wish I spent more time in the office, except if they're on their deathbed because they have no health care because they didn't spend time. Yeah, except if they're in county general and dying under bright lights with shitty health care. Yeah. Look, this isn't for everybody. The playbook isn't for everybody, but the reality is in a capitalist society, it's a loving, generous place. America becomes more like itself every every day. And that is, it's a loving, generous place if you have economic security, and it's a harsh, rapacious place if you don't. And I advise young people to be very maniacally focused on establishing the currency and the skills and the credibility such that they have uh, a viability in the marketplace such that they can be economically secure. The number one cause of divorce isn't infidelity, it's economic strain. Children's standing blood pressure is higher in low-income homes. Your opportunities for your children, your health care, your selection set of mates, your blood pressure will all be directly correlated to your economic security. So, and I'm like, my, my playbook is not the playbook, but I stand by it. From the ages uh, 22 to 42, I did nothing but work. It cost me my hair, it cost me my marriage, and it was worth it. And what I can tell people is they, is they can have it all. They just can't have it all at the same time. And mm-hmm. the time you really want to put the pedal to the metal and work and find out what you're good at and develop those skills and establish relationships is before you have dogs and kids, because both of those things will demand your attention. So I, it's not that I didn't have a good time. 
but I was very focused on making progress professionally because your career is like a rocket ship in the sense that getting off the launch pad is really hard and takes a ton of fuel and getting into uh, inner orbit takes a massive amount of fuel. But if you have that momentum and you can burn that fuel while you're young, when you get to my age, uh, and Mike, you're younger than me, but if you get into your 40s with some credibility, some income that you can invest, a partnership that's productive economically, a true partner uh, economically and emotionally, you get into space and you find with less fuel and less effort, you can just cover a lot more ground. But boy, get on it early. And I know that sounds very boomer, and I'm not saying don't go to Coachella, and I'm not saying kill yourself. But like I said, I, I've never known any, if you expect to be economically secure, which takes more and more money every day in the United States, I've never known anyone to be economically secure that wasn't smart enough to inherit money that didn't at some point work a solid decade or two. So is Jeff Bezos as a person, has he been a force for good or ill in American society? Oh, net uh, force of good. Big tech's been a net force of good. Um, mm -hmm. The problem is with the word net. Fossil fuels have been a net good, but we still have emission standards. Pesticides have been a net good, but we still have an EPA. So he's been a net positive, but that doesn't mean we should let him engage in this circus where he pretends he might put his headquarters in Phoenix or he gets to own AWS and use that to subsidize an e-commerce platform for predatory pricing. But net net, my sense of him personally is that he's a good man. My sense of, and I think Amazon's added huge value. Amazon will hire 30 kids out of my class this year. It's our biggest recruiter. I've owned their stock since 2019. I love the service, but the FTC and the DOJ should absolutely break them up. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I look at him as sort of a human proxy for aggregate demand. And if we get upset mm. by him creating or making more money, all we're really saying is there's that other indication of consumer spending per quarter. And when that goes up, we are heartened by it. He's basically just figured out a way to be consumer spending. Um, and yes, you're right. I would say that the search for HQ2 was a bit of a sham, but... I do also think that there is a downside to hating the plutocrat so much that it overwhelms you and or overwhelms a person. And you can't also see that these are hard balancing acts. Um, and it's not about good and evil. It's about let's let the big dogs run, but let's also, you know, occasionally put a leash on them. Yeah, look, uh, uh, I have found and I find there's a cartoon of rich people and it's essentially Monty Burns from The Simpsons. They're evil, <laughs> weird, so, you know, selfish people. And what yeah. I have found is that on average, billionaires, I've known a lot of them, are better people. They're better than your average bear. They're smarter, they're harder working, and not only that, they're better citizens. And they're very, they're good people because it is impossible yeah. or near impossible to get to that point without creating a lot of allies. Now, having said that, I don't think Jeff Bezos, I don't have a problem with billionaires. What I have a problem with, Mike, is that Jeff Bezos pays a lower tax rate than you. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think he should be able to suppress competition by funding his e-commerce platform with profits from AWS such that no e-commerce company, what e-commerce company has, has emerged in the last 10 years? They really the aren't That's the you're talking about, yeah. So I, I, look, I think there's nuance here, but generally speaking, is he a good man? I think he is. Has he been a net positive for the world? Sure, and you know what? That doesn't mean we can't do a lot better. Right. And all these flaws, though, are they Jeff Bezos's flaws or the flaws oh, no, of people ours. who should be? They're us. Yeah, exactly. Like it's the, voters. Like, like the bad dog analogy. Yeah. No, I, I, I do everything I can to minimize my tax bill. And people say, well, Scott, if you're a big fan of progressive taxes, just send in a check. I'm like, I'm not going to disarm unilaterally. 
Of course, mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best to minimize my tax code. But I would be up for it. And I'll vote for people that say, first 100,000, 10, 10%, anything above that, 30%, corporations, 30%, we're done. We're done. That, that is, I think that is, I think that, I think you'd have a budget surplus if you had that. And the fact that Jeff Bezos gets to uh, grow his, grow his wealth tax, tax deferred, the fact that his company gets subsidies, you know, Amazon has gotten over, I think it's, it's either one or $3 billion in subsidies. What, what the heck? Anyways, yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot of improvement, but uh, on a net basis, absolutely a positive. What is corporate DEI training getting right and wrong as it's instituted today? That's a big one. Um, I think ESG investing, and I think the whole ESG uh, moniker has become near fraudulent. I think it's weird. There are okay. ESG funds, and now uh, for some reason have decided that Southwest Airlines is ESG friendly, despite the fact it's consuming $2 billion in gasoline. It's like, who gets to decide what is equity sustainable? I just don't, I feel like it's been weaponized. In terms of training and helping people understand people from different backgrounds, at a minimum saying, yeah, we have a, we have a non-gender bathroom. And you know what? That's fine. Just be kind. I, I feel like some of this is some training for people to say, you know, this is why some people might find this behavior offensive. This is why men, and this is statistically shown, men mistake kindness for sexual interest and women mistake sexual interest for kindness. So as a result, a lot of men in positions of power in corporations are inclined to leverage their, pow- their power and put women in uncomfortable situations, and they don't even know they're doing it. So some education that says, this is what happens. You may not even be aware of it. And also above a certain, I've been on a bunch of public company boards. I think young people at businesses should meet, fall in love, and get married or, or not get married, whatever they want. I had three married, I started a company called L2, which is a business intelligence firm this past weekend. Three of my kids, and I say my kids, people who joined right out of college got married, and two of them worked together. And 99% of relationships that begin at work are consensual and really wonderful things. A third of relationships begin at work. But some training up front around, okay, you have to disclose it. These are the things you have to be very mindful of. And also, I think above a certain level of seniority, you're off limits. You, you take that shit off campus because the reality is you have a lot of power and you got to find it somewhere else. And there's some wonderful things to being a senior person in a company. You make more money. People laugh at your jokes. But you should have enough game to find that shit off campus, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think some training up front around how people of color uh, have a different perception of things. And when you say things that you might seem harmless to you, they're hurtful. I think we're having a really interesting conversation around transgender rights. And so I, I find some of that education is really important. Now, having said that, I've also found HR departments that are overstaffed, that are in the business of just playing gotcha all the time. And that, I, you know, I think it's situational. A guy named John Dempsey at Estee Lauder guy retweeted oh. a really inappropriate tweet and got fired. And I thought, well, a cartoon, right. A cartoon right. That had been yeah. tweeted out by a black comedian. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy, John Dempsey, has spent his career not only making a shit ton of money for the Lauder family and shareholders, but promoting and advancing the rights of, of historically disenfranchised groups. Was the first person to put a trans person on an ad for MAC Cosmetics. So they, when, when you take one frame of the 35 millimeters of someone, if it's a pattern of behavior, fine, shit can them. 
But I thought that was just an example of a corporation posing for the woke cameras. Would America be better off if we had France's vacation policies and mindset? I don't think so. I, I think I think one of the wonderful things about the American brand or what makes the American experience unique, we work. We work really hard. And I think it's something wonderful about Americans. I also think that it, it serves for tremendous purpose. Mm -hmm. I think it's good for your mental health. Um, and I am very French. I take August off because I can. And the reason why I can is because I worked my fucking ass off when I was young. And so if somebody wants to work their ass off, I had nothing to do. I had no spouse. I had no romantic partners. I had no dogs. What I had was a burning desire for economic security. I wanted to take care of my mom who got sick. I wanted to have more money such that someday I could have a nice life and attract a disproportionate or have an opportunity, a larger target set of mates. And I figured out very early, a lot of that has to do with your economic viability. So as recently as my last company on Thanksgiving, I used to head out with my partner, Maureen Mullen, Wednesday night to Europe because they didn't take Thanksgiving off. And we saw it as a chance to lap the competition. And <laughs> that paid off. Competitive vacationing. <laughs> That's right. That paid off for me. I, I bested the competition, which is what America's about. I sold my company for a, a lot of money. And now I take August off. And you know why I take August off? Because I can. And I love the fact that Americans work really hard. It's how we won World War II. We put women in munitions factories. We ran our factories around the clock. We overwhelmed the Axis powers with P-51 Mustangs, Tommy guns, and M1 Bradley tanks, because in America, we work. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. He is the co-host of the Pivot podcast, the host of the Prof G podcast, No Mercy, No Malice is his blog, and his latest book is Adrift America in 100 Charts. Scott, thanks so much. Mike, thanks so much for having me. Congratulations on your success. And now the spiel. J.R. Majewski got famous for lawn care and rode that notoriety all the way to the Republican nomination for Congress in his corner of Ohio. Situated in a district represented by Democrat Marcy Kaptur since mm, before Majewski was born, the Republicans in the statehouse redrew maps to open Kaptur up to a challenger into the breach road Majewski, who capitalized on his status as QAnon curious, political outsider, Trump lover. He gained notoriety after he painted his lawn to take the shape of a large Trump campaign ad. It worked because there were two more qualified Republicans in the primary, but they split the non-Miracle Grove vote and Majewski, an Air Force veteran, was the nominee. Along the way, he utilized social media. He provided a guest track on this rap song by pro-maga hip-hop artist, J360. Even Vladimir Putin viewed us as insanity. He say the West is doing crimes against humanity. Let's go Brandon. Gas prices high. Let's go Brandon. Tax twice as high. Here is the contribution of your next congressman from Ohio's 9th Congressional District. They want to make us woke and force us to get the vax. Taking pictures with the Pope will get us to all relax. Not to poke fun at dementia, it's a serious disease. But come on, man. Squeeze your cheeks when you sneeze. That was not disqualifying.
But this next thing, it may be. Yesterday, the AP reported that the Air Force cannot confirm Majewski's claims of seeing combat in Afghanistan. He was in the Air Force. He did load airplanes in Qatar during the Afghanistan war. There is no evidence he ever served in Afghanistan. And while Majewski says he did set foot in Afghanistan, which doesn't necessarily count uh, to earn, say, a medal for service in Afghanistan. He absolutely claims that he never set foot in the capital on January 6th, though he admits to being there outside the Stop the Steal rally. He did also say on a QAnon live stream a week after the attack that he was, quote, pissed off at myself, end quote, for not going into the building. Majewski did not respond to the AP's request for comment, but he did go on Newsmax yesterday to say he was there in Afghanistan. He doesn't have a medal or the documentation to prove it because he never applied for a medal. And in a later press conference, he explained his service was classified. At that press conference, he took two questions, one friendly, one not, and he added, A liberal journalist has an agenda and has put my life, my family's life, and the lives of my team at risk. He did not make clear what he meant by that, perhaps just generally how tough it is to run for Congress. Now, it is true that a support area like Qatar, where Majewski served and says he flew into places like Afghanistan from, that was designated a combat zone during the Persian Gulf War by George Herbert Walker Bush. But that doesn't square with the popular conception and many veterans' views of what it means to be and claim to be a combat veteran to have seen combat as Majewski has claimed. The AP also examined Majewski's claims of having served, quote, as an executive in the nuclear power industry, and it could not find any evidence of that. The AP reveals that he worked for a company called Holtec International, a Florida-based energy conglomerate that specializes in handling spent nuclear fuel. They went over his bankruptcy filings. They documented that his maximum salary was $51,000, which was not the pay level of an executive. All these technicalities, including the technicalities versus the realities of what constitutes a combat veteran, well, they now become something of a side issue because the reality of a political race is that even in a favorably drawn district, a political novice needs all the help he could get against an entrenched incumbent. Yesterday, the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, which funds ads for their promising candidates, withdrew a million dollars that had been slated for advertisements supporting Majewski's run. And that's it for today's show. Assistant producer of The Gist, Cory Wara, did not see combat in the culture wars, but he did load a couple of memes up to MySpace in his day. Senior producer of The Gist, Joel Patterson, did not see combat in the Cold War, but he did have a Star Wars lunchbox. Kind of counts. COO of Peachfish Productions, Michelle Pesca, was not a participant in the war on drugs, but she once did own a water pipe for tobacco use only. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.